get that out of the way so I don't trip on it and entertain you all. So we're continuing our study of the Psalms tonight with Psalm 3. Psalm 3 is a song of trust expressing confidence in God and His work even when there's a difficulty or a trial in life. Before we get to Psalm 3 itself, I think it'd be helpful for us to consider the context of this particular psalm. How do we figure that out? Well, if you look in your Bibles, most of you will probably have a title between Psalm 3 and verse 1. On mine it says, A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. Just a quick word about these titles. Uh, the titles or superscriptions were added after the psalm was written, but very early in the uh, collecting of the psalms. And so, the way that I would describe them is this. They are accurate, but they're not inspired like the rest of the psalm would be. The significance of that is that they do provide helpful historical information about sometimes who wrote the psalm or the context in which the psalm was written. And so, in this particular case, this is a psalm that was written by David, and it says, when he fled from Absalom his son. If you're in a position of authority long enough, sooner or later someone gets unhappy with you. In the case of David and Absalom, it went far beyond the typical disgruntled employee, unhappy child, that sort of thing, to where Absalom basically said, I'm going to overthrow my father David as being king. I'm going to be the king in his place. So that is why, in short, David had to flee from Absalom. Uh, the story is found in 2 Samuel 15. I'll just read a few verses for you from there. 2 Samuel 15, starting in verse 13, says this, Then a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for otherwise none of us will escape from Absalom. Go in haste, or he will overtake us quickly, and bring down calamity on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Then the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king chooses. So the king went out and all his household with him, but the king left ten concubines to keep the house. If your own son decided that he wanted to be king instead of you and led a rebellion to overthrow you, how would you respond? We see in David's case, at least in the aftermath of that event, he responds by expressing his trust in God through this particular psalm. And I think in Psalm 3 we learn this. We need to trust God when opposition comes. But there's at least four things connected with that that we see here in the passage. The first of them is found in verses 1 and 2. You need to recognize your need. Look at verses 1 and 2. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. And so David in these two verses is recognizing, acknowledging, describing his need before God. What are the two things that he describes? He describes enemies rising up. He describes them, first of all, as that they have increased. When Absalom took over the kingdom, it wasn't just Absalom and a handful of people. He had been systematically working to turn the hearts of the people of Israel away from his father David so that they would follow after him. The way that he did this was, every time they would have a problem, he would come to the, he would be there hanging out by the city gate and people would come in and they would say, I have this problem, I need to go talk to the king. And Absalom would put on this real pious act and he'd say, 
you know, if I was king, I'd love to help you out. But, you know, David, he does what he can. I'm, I'm ad-libbing a little bit here. I don't, it's not specifically in the text. But the part about him waiting at the gate and turning people's heart away, that is in the text. And so this had been going on for the space of several years. And so you can imagine when he says, hey, I'm king, there had to have been a good number of people that said, hey, this is the guy that's our friend. This is the guy that's going to help us out. And they went over after him. This number included some of the priests and included some of the men who had been David's counselors or his advisors. Um, it even included Mephibosheth. And what's the significance of that? Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son. Jonathan and Saul were both killed. David said to Jonathan before he died, if anything ever happens to you, I'm going to watch out for your family. Mephibosheth was lame. He couldn't work to support himself, so David let him eat at the king's table. He was providing for his needs. He went astray. He went after Absalom and said, now I'm going to get my, my share of the kingdom back. So in a, in a remarkable act of ingratitude for what David had done for him, even Mephibosheth turned aside to go with Absalom. So his enemies are rising up. They increase. Many rising up, uh, here I would stress the idea of them rising up. We look at this and we say, one king, another king, what's the big deal? The significance was God had appointed David to be the king. So rising up against David as the king wasn't just like, I voted for this person, I voted for that person, it's not a big deal. It was God had said, here's the king, and these people were in direct opposition to that saying, we don't want him as king, we want this guy as king. So ultimately, it wasn't just that they were opposing David, they were opposing God's purpose for Israel. Well, then you come to verse 2 and you see his enemies questioning God's power to deliver. Many are saying, of my soul, some translations might say, to my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. And so whether this is something that he sort of heard uh, as an aside, just sort of uh, murmurings among the people, or whether this is something that he specifically was set, had said to him, regardless of that, the, the idea is the same, there is no deliverance for him in God. And we're going to come to verse 8 in a little bit, where it says salvation belongs to the Lord. Same word is used here. It's translated deliverance, but it's the same word. There's no salvation for him in God. But the end of the psalm is going to say salvation is from God. And so we have these, these phrases sort of at the beginning and the end of the psalm. And how disheartening would that have been? We don't really think that you should be king. God's not going to help you out in this. David, you're done. And I'm sure David probably thought about the various ways that he had failed at this particular point. I mean, who wouldn't? And yet he expresses trust in God. He starts out by remembering in verses 3 and 4 who God is. Verse 3, But you, Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. Sunday night we talked about the idea that Jesus is the cornerstone. Throughout Psalms you have this concept that God is a rock of refuge. It's like there's a storm coming, you want something that's going to be a safe place that will shelter you from the wind and protect you. That's the imagery that God is described with. And David uses that same idea here when he says, you're a shield about me. We tend to think of a shield as like the thing that you carry on your arm and it's just sort of in front of you. But for David... God's protection wasn't just on one side of him or the other. It was surrounding him. God was watching over him and looking after him. 
it says his glory and the one who lifts his head. That idea of his glory would be that he derives his glory, his honor, his position from God. It's connected to God having chosen him as king. The idea of lifting his head would be not just his, his head, but his whole person. There's, this would be a kind of a figurative language where you have a part standing for the whole. Uh, it wasn't just his head was lifted, but the entirety of his person. God had exalted him to be the position of king. And now his, that is called into question, but he's expressing faith and trust in the midst of that circumstance. So God was a shield. God was the source of his glory. God was the one who lifted up his head. And he remembered God in connection with this by seeking his help through prayer. So not only did he remember God by remembering who he was, but he showed that he acknowledged who God was by praying to God. We see this in verse 4. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. And when it says he was crying to the Lord with my voice, he probably was out loud crying to God with his voice, God, help me. God, deliver me. God, I need you. The from his holy mountain is interesting because we see it several times in Psalms. You see it, for example, in uh, Psalm 15, who can abide in your tent, who can dwell in your holy hill. We saw it last week in Psalm 2 and verse 6. I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Who is worthy to be in God's presence? For the Israelite that was associated with the city of Jerusalem. Why was it a holy hill or a holy mountain? Because it was an actual hill or mountain. It was higher than the geography around it. Why was it holy? Because God had set it apart to himself. This is the place where I'm going to dwell in and among my people. Here's the fascinating thing. David's running away from Absalom. He's not in Jerusalem. And yet, what is he saying? God answered me from his holy mountain. So what does that remind us about God? It reminds us that unlike the gods of the pagans who are confined to a specific national boundary, or uh, some of Israel's enemies said, you know, your God is a God of the hills, or your God is a God of the valleys, but a God in one place is not a God in another place. Or think of the story of Jonah. Which God is it that you disobeyed and ran away from? You know, they're worshiping all these gods, the God for this particular island, the God for this part of the sea, the God of the sky. Jonah's like, no, I'm running away from the God that made everything. What was their response? Now we're really afraid because we haven't just offended this God that we can sort of row out of his territory and everything will be okay. We offended the God that made the whole world. Now we're in trouble. Same kind of idea here, but in a positive sense. God hears David, even though David is not in the place where God's temple is located, uh, will be located, where God's presence was in the tabernacle. And so we see here that David remembered God, God's help through prayer. Recognize your need, remember God, but then also respond correctly. Look at verse 5 and 6. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Seems an odd response. You're running for your life from your son who's taken the kingdom from you. How could you say, I lay down and slept? For the same reason that Jesus lay down and slept in the boat on the Sea of Galilee, for the same reason that Daniel lay down and slept in the den of lions. Why? Because God was present with them. In Jesus' case, he is God. But God the Father was also present with him. And 
they recognized that despite the overwhelming nature of the circumstances, God is still there. So is there a possibility of rest and security and comfort even in the midst of a, a, an upheaval sort of situation? Yes. And then it says, I awoke for the Lord sustains me. So he goes to sleep trusting that God's going to watch over him and he wakes up and he says, you know what? God's still watching over me. But you think about that. In uh, Colossians and in Hebrews, it says that Jesus Christ is the one who sustains the universe. He holds all things together. So if you wake up that next day, what's the significance of that? God watched over you. He kept you alive through the night. He gave you a new day. And David had a sense of that. Aside from, you know, we have perhaps a better glimpse of it because we have all these other passages that describe it. And yet David was aware that God sustained him. God helped him. And this wouldn't be the first time in his life that he'd been aware of that, would it? When he was running from Saul, who was watching over him and preserving his life for all those years? God was. So not only did he need to act correctly in his response, he also needed to feel correctly. Look at verse 6. I will not be afraid. This phrase is significant because it captures to a certain extent the entirety of his person. In what sense? The basis for his not being afraid is God's presence. That's a fact, that's truth, that's knowledge that he had in his head. The I will not is a statement of will, a statement of purpose. I'm choosing not to be afraid. And then the afraid describes the, the emotional response. So how could David not have a response of fear in the midst of a fearful situation? And the answer is because as God transforms our thinking, transforms our desires, transforms even our affections, when we come to a particular circumstance, if I am believing something that's false, I'm going to have a wrong emotional response. If I'm desiring and choosing something that's wrong, I'm going to have a wrong emotional response. If I'm loving something that's wrong, I'm going to have a wrong emotional response. But if God is changing all of those things about who I am to fit with what he wants me to be, then I can say something like what David says, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. So despite the numbers who opposed him, despite the humanly speaking hopelessness of his situation, David was able to express confidence in God. So he needed to recognize his need. He needed to remember God. He needed to respond correctly, and he needed to rejoice in God's help. Verse 7 repeats his cry for help. We saw it in verse 4, and we see it again here in verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. We see that. He's saying, God, rise up. He expressed that God was present in his, in his holy hill, that God heard his prayer. Now he's saying, God, you've heard my prayer. Act on it. Carry out the deliverance. Watch out for me. Help me. And so he's calling specifically to God for help. And he's looking at it from the context of how God had treated the wicked. Now, uh, it's possible that you could take it as, for you do smite my enemies on the cheek. But I think you have smitten. We can certainly see that God had watched out for David against all of his enemies. Against Goliath against Saul, against the Philistines at various points that he fought battles against. God had watched out for David. God had 
had smitten them. He'd hit them. He'd attacked them. It says, you've shattered the teeth of the wicked. The same imagery is used in Psalm 58, 6. He talks about breaking the teeth of the wild beast. It's as though here's a lion and somebody just came and smashed their teeth and took their power away from them. They couldn't hurt him anymore. The thing that's interesting here, and the thing that I think is helpful for us to consider, is why was David in this situation? Think about the fact that David was not perfect. David was a sinner. And you see this in the context of 2 Samuel. Some of the things that took place were one of David's children abused one of David's other children, and David didn't do anything about it. So then Absalom goes and kills his, his half-brother over the whole circumstance, and David doesn't do anything about that. And then Absalom runs away. Well, then David says, I wish that he would come back, and somebody gets him and brings him back. And then Absalom does his thing where he's leading the hearts of the people away from David. And so there were failures in David's life that, humanly speaking, led to the circumstance that he was in. And at the same time, God put him in this circumstance to teach him, to give him an opportunity to express trust and confidence in a proper way. Related to this was the fact that God had appointed David to be king. So despite his failures, his sin with Bathsheba, his failures with parenting his children, despite those things, until God told David, you're not supposed to be the king any longer, it was David's job to be the king. And so as the king, as the one that God had appointed to lead the people of Israel, David had both the right and the responsibility to say, God, I'm supposed to be the king unless you've told me not to. Deliver me, put me back in that position, Help me to rule once again, because that's what I'm supposed to be doing. And so it was right for him to pray this, even toward, to a certain extent, his own son. Here's an enemy, like all these other enemies that you've dealt with, Lord. Defeat him. Think about how hard that would be if you had to say, God, defeat my enemy, and that enemy is my own family. Think about how hard that would be. And yet, in the context of what God called David to do, David was right in praying, God, you defeated my enemies in the past. Defeat this enemy. Restore me to the position of leadership that you've called me to fulfill. And then in verse 8, we have this expression of trust that's tied in with several things, with God's power, with God's promises. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. So going back and contrasting with what it said in verse 2, God won't save you. What's David saying? God is the only one that can save me. This has to do with the fact that God, salvation comes from the Lord in terms of his promises toward his people, in terms of his power, his ability to actually carry out those promises. I think all of these ideas stand behind this phrase here. And when it says salvation... A lot of times in a New Testament context, we would read this as, and you'll go to heaven, which I don't think is what David has in mind here. I think he's saying, in my specific circumstance, when I've been cast out of my kingdom, the only way I'm going to be restored, the only way I'm going to be delivered, the only way I'm going to be saved, is if God intervenes. Now, obviously, that's not disconnected from the idea of his eternal state, because the reason that God came and helped David, and God didn't help Saul, the reason that Saul died in battle at the hand of the Philistines, 
and David wasn't cast out by his son indefinitely is because David had a relationship with God and had eternal life and all those sorts of things. But the primary focus here is, God, deliver me from this circumstance. God, help me and fulfill your promises to your people. When he says, your blessing be upon your people, I think he's saying this. At the end of the day, it's not about me. But uh, Psalm 78 talks about the fact that before David came to rule the people of Israel, they were scattered as sheep without a shepherd. He came and God appointed him to gather the people and to lead them and to rule them well. And so there's an extent to which David's saying, God, watch out for your people. And you brought me into a position where I can gather them and watch out for them and lead them. So restore me to that so that your people aren't scattered. So it wasn't just about David getting his throne back. It was about what's best for the nation of Israel as a whole. And this was in context, in connection with David's uh, promises from God that he received in 2 Samuel 7. You'll rule, your descendant will sit on the throne, I am establishing this covenant with you. And so I'm sure he had those promises in mind as well. So what would it look like for us to pray a passage like this? I think we could potentially start in the first couple of verses and perhaps you're in a situation where you have people who are not Christians who are around you and they're opposing you because you're a Christian. You could pray, God, someone is opposing me because I'm a Christian. You could also confess like David, and I know that I'm imperfect. I know that I sin. But you still put me as this person's boss or parent or teacher, or maybe you're just their coworker or friend. God, this person's opposition is a real obstacle in my life. Help me to overcome it just like you helped David. That's one way that we could pray this passage. You could go to uh, verses 5 and 6. You could say, God, there's this particular circumstance perhaps connected with someone's opposition of me as a Christian, and it's so overwhelming that I can't even sleep at night because it's so consuming my thoughts and my energy and my focus. God, help me to be able to rest in the fact that you're in control of the situation. You put me here, you can take me out of that situation when it's your time and your purpose, or you can leave, it in, leave me in it as long as you want me to. Help me not to be afraid of this person. Help me not to be afraid of this situation because you are there, because you're present. And we could do the same with the rest of the verses in this psalm, but I would encourage you as, as you uh, pray for different people through some of these requests that are on our prayer sheet, that you would take some of the phrases of this psalm and think about how they apply to these different situations, how we can pray for one another, encouraging one another in this way. Whatever the circumstances you face, it's not going to be identical to David. You're not generally going to be a king, and your son has risen up and said, I'm going to overthrow you as king. That being said, there are parallels between the circumstances that David faced and circumstances that we face. And beyond that, there's principles that we can see here about responding to difficult situations by expressing trust in God and asking for His help and seeing Him work. And so let's follow this pattern even this week as we face some of these kinds of situations. So if you would, uh, take time with those around you and, uh, and pray, and uh, then we'll come back and sing.